Welcome, everybody. This is the U.S. Great Sports Podcast. I'm Doug Berry, along with my very good friend, Father Richard Heilman. And wearing a cassock. Got... Wearing a cassock. Wearing a cassock he is yeah. tonight. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Looking dashing I'm and amazing. influenced by the young priest all around me. So That's awesome. Yeah. That is an excellent thing. thing to hear. Yeah. yeah. And tonight we've got Joshua Charles back with us from the bullpen. Joshua Charles is up, ready to pitch an amazing podcast tonight. Of course, everything's got to begin with prayer. Father, we leave that to you. Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. Thank you very much, Father. And of course, we always begin the podcast by thanking everybody out there who supports the U.S. Grace Force podcast. We cannot do this without your help. Your prayers, especially, most importantly, mean everything to us. But for those of you who support us with your comments, your encouragement, and even your questions, anything else that you can throw at us, we love to hear back from you, any and all feedback. Also, we thank those of you out there who support us through the Patreon program, which is also a very powerful way to help us continue to get this message out. You can click the link in the description below if you'd like to support us financially through the Patreon program. I would say a few dollars a month goes a very long way in helping us to continue to get these messages out. And this is a pretty serious one, of course, about persecution. We all know the persecution seems to be part and parcel of being a follower of Christ. It just goes with the territory, as someone like St. Mother Teresa would say. But how do we endure it? And that's something we're going to get into tonight. And so, again, your support helps us continue to get these messages out. And this, again, is a very important platform that we can use while we have time, while we have resources to reach as many lives as possible. Don't forget also go out to the U.S. Grace Force gear page. Again, the link in the description below and check out what we have for T-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, the whole nine yards, a lot of great stuff out there. So don't forget to take a look at that as well. So, Father, we've got this, this amazing guest back with us once again. Used to be a speech writer for, I don't know, some somebody in the White House. I forget who that was at the time. But anyway, I'll leave that to you, Father, to introduce our, our guest tonight. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on, Joshua. And uh, we were conversing before we started rolling. And um, we're both very good friends of uh, Stephen and Carrie Harriet. And yeah. uh, he wrote a book. Called, or, I mean, he's written a song that's really kind of... Making the way, uh, Father Anias, right? Is that pronunciation right? Father Anias? As far as I'm aware, yeah. Yeah, and then, um, but he dedicated it to me. <laughs> so that's a good friend there. But we, we have those mutual friends. And um, I'm actually going to show a picture uh, a little later of Carrie holding up your books. <laughs> Stephen put it on the internet. Yeah, I saw that the other yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen's yeah. a great guy. Yeah, so uh, very fun, very fun. Anyway, enough about the Harriets. But... Um, so yeah, uh, you're a convert from uh, Protestantism, and uh, like Doug said, you're a former White House speechwriter, uh, number one New York Times best-selling author, a historian, a classic pianist uh, with degrees in music, government, and law, and you've authored and edited eight books, and <clears throat> and uh, your writings and ghostwritings have appeared in many of the top media outlets in the world. So there, I did it like Glenn Beck did when you had you had, you had, yeah. he had you yeah, on. We were on so. recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was no, bio right you. in front of me. But yeah, uh, no, so, honor to be with you guys as always. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on because 
I do consider you an expert, and I, I think you you strive to be that expert. And you're you're deciding to hit, um, I think, a primary topic in our times right now. And mm. my, my book, I got, I was telling you before we started rolling too, is on its way. It's going to appear tomorrow. I can't wait to read it. Uh, but uh, uh, persecuted from within is the title. Yep. And uh, so yeah, please, here's the book right here. Yeah, yeah, there it is. It. Oh. Good. You know the, these cameras, and, and let's over. let's put let's put Carrie's picture up too. <laughs> Persecuted from within, how the yeah. saints endured crises in the church. How the saints endured crises in the church. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and if uh, I was reading the uh, description online, and boy, I can't wait to read this thing. But it seems it's just what we need right now because I think everybody's. I keep saying, I keep using the words, we're punch drunk with everything yeah. that's going on in the world. Um, the the confusion of the church, uh, everything that's going on right now, and then it, as I'm reading the description too, you're you're pointing out that you know th this time that we're in right now is not in isolation. It's it's something that in one way, shape, or another has occurred in the past too. And so you you say, how did the the saints handle that? But can you give us a, a brief description as we get started here? Um, Joshua, about you know wh what the book is and and really what was the impetus for you to to take on this project? Yeah, no, thank you guys again. Um, I really value not only you, Father and Doug, but uh, your audience. You guys have a great audience, and um, you guys balance so well. I think taking seriously what needs to be taken seriously, but doing it with a sense of joy and levity. And um, uh, I mean, Father, your your faith just beams through your face and so and i think that's so helpful and, and it it reflects in your audience i'm a firm believer that we we you know not in like the you know the new agey oprah kind of way but in general we attract the kind of people that we mm. are and it's obvious with you know many of the comments with your audience so i'm i'm really happy to be with you guys and your audience yeah no the book started right after the white house one of my colleagues there he my co-author alec torres he's also a former white house speechwriter and we're both converts from Protestantism. And so uh, he came to me with an idea and the idea, it's all his idea. And he said, I've been thinking about this issue. What if we covered saints that were persecuted from within the church, meaning by popes or bishops or priests or religious or other laymen, whatnot? Uh, just seems like that's kind of relevant and we'll be getting more relevant. And this was in 2021, I believe. And I said, I think that's a great idea. That seems really relevant. And it'd be very, it'd help us become holier by learning about these saints and writing about them. And I want to make clear at the outset, um, the saints we cover are St. Paul. Well, we covered the life of Jesus first, but St. Paul, uh, St. Athanasius, St. Joan of Arc, St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher, uh, St. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, St. Alphonsus Liguori, St. Uh, Mary McKillop in Australia. She's a lesser known saint. I didn't know about her before this. Um, saint, uh, well, not saint technically yet, but Venerable Fulton Sheen and St. Padre Pio. So we've got a very good, you know, we're covering the whole 2000 year history of the church. You know, we have biblical, ancient, medieval, early modern, Baroque, uh, and then modern period. So we're, we're covering everything, male, female, layman, priests, religious, uh, whatnot. And um, I want to say just at the outset, I don't claim to have fully imbibed all the wisdom that's available from these saints' lives and the lessons they teach us. So just so folks know, I, I'm not I'm not um, presuming on that. I, I'm as I reread 
uh, chapters that we wrote, I'm frequently challenged myself. And so uh, when I share these stories, uh, um, that's the spirit with which I share them. So, yeah, uh, all these saints were in one form or another persecuted from within the church and oftentimes by people who had a duty to do the opposite, to protect them or to preach the faith until death, if need be. Um, or, you know, in the case of uh, saints like St. John Fisher, you know, he was completely abandoned by all basically all the bishops in England. He was the only bishop that stood firm against the takeover of the church by Henry VIII. Um, likewise with uh, St. Thomas More, he was one of the only laymen who stood up, one of the only high officials, maybe the only high official, I'd have to double check that, but certainly one of the only high officials in all of England who stood up against the bullying from the king and he lost his life for it. So um, the story- Boy, that get... sounds familiar. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and we're going to get into that, I'm sure, but wow. Yeah. Well, uh, and he was standing for papal authority and for marriage. So, but uh, I will say what I'm continually- impressed by when I ponder the lives of these saints and even reread, you know, chapters. Cause I sometimes, you know, forget some of the details myself. That's what, that's partly why I'm a writer. So I can write things down and not have to remember everything. <laughs> um, but uh, is, is there's this astounding supernatural ability to endure suffering, which is exactly uh, cognizant with what our Lord was like and what he calls us to. Uh, you know, our Lord was prophesied to suffer very clearly in the Old Testament. I think the two, my two favorite chapters, I'm sure most people know the first one, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Um, it says that he'll be silent. He'll be led like a sheep to the slaughter. Um, and it was the most unjust act in all of human history that this was in relation to. Uh, my other favorite is uh, Wisdom 2 uh, from a book that uh, most Protestants don't realize actually is part of the Bible. <laughs> Um, it was, and when I found out as a Protestant, whoa, there's, there's potentially seven more books. I would, cause I love the Bible. I was so excited and wisdom and Sirach just blew my mind. And so I read this prophecy in wisdom and basically, uh, wisdom too, I believe it starts at verse 12. It's the words of what seem like the Pharisees and those who are going to kill Jesus. So, oh, he calls himself God's son. And, uh, he says that God is his father. It's like, okay, this is starting to sound familiar. And he says, if he really is, well, then call him down to protect you, which is exactly what they were saying at the foot of the cross, that, well, if you really are who you say you are, then bring yourself down, you know, save yourself. You know, he saved others, but he couldn't save himself. So, you know, you have this, um, you have this, this prophetic utterance of this centuries before in the book of wisdom, and, and then Jesus fulfilled it in the, in the gospel narratives. And so, or as recorded in the gospel narrative. So you see that with so many of these saints and, you know, I will say very clearly up front, I think we're in a very serious crisis, potentially the most serious of the entire history of the church. I will say that up front. However, um, I will also say it can get a lot worse in terms of what each of us will personally be required to suffer. It's really interesting. And Father, I'd love your thoughts on this. And it's very interesting. In the past, physical persecution, you know, drawing blood, killing people, you know, that would obviously tamper people's willingness to stand up for their faith. It, it, it would it would make us all of us shirk a little bit because we're human. But um, it seems to me that perhaps the demonic tactic today is he doesn't even need to go that far because of, of, of the Internet everywhere, pornography everywhere, right. 
all the other things that are around just kind of in the air of our culture. Um, he doesn't need to. If all he needs is to draw a soul into damnation, all he needs to do is draw it into a state of mortal sin. He, he you know, killing him is like, you know, he he's he's that's multiple steps down the road. And so so I will simply say that with a lot of these saints, not all of them were faced with martyrdom, although some certainly were. But one that I particularly came to love because I found a book with the trial proceedings. I had never been able to read them. And I think it's the only one where substantial portions of them are in English, but it's St. Joan of Arc. I mean, St. Joan of Arc was literally killed. She lost her life and she did so as a faithful Catholic. Like it didn't it didn't seem to occur to her, oh, this can't be the true church because I'm being killed by it. You know, mm. it's it's very, very interesting. Um, so I with many of these saints, uh, you know. St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. I mean, St. John of the Cross, you know, heard about an opportunity to suffer and went into rapture for an hour. It's like, I'm very far from that. <laughs> so my, my point is, is that um, things I think are extremely concerning right now. And again, objectively, arguably the worst in church history for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think from the stories of these saints, many will people, many people will get a sense of encouragement um, but also a sense of warning that the toll that may be exacted of each of us personally to stand up for these things can and perhaps will get very much higher up to and including loss of property and potentially even loss of life. And um, and and uh, we know that so many saints have endured that. And if they are our model, of course, with Christ as the ultimate model, um, we can too. But but people need to realize um if we can't have peace in the midst of what's happening now, uh, that should be an indicator to us that I think we have a lot more to go in our spiritual life because things can, and I, I frankly, I think they will in our lifetime get much worse. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point I, I, I was going to ask you about. In a book that St. Thomas More wrote while he was in the tower before he died, I think they said it's the last book that he wrote, The Sadness of Christ. Yeah. He states in there that don't claim so quickly that you would die for Christ. Peter did the same thing and within hours denied that he even knew him. Yeah. And I, I think about, you know, today, you know, I, I like to think I have that kind of strength and backbone, but I don't know. I've never been in that situation. As a good friend of mine says, who's a combat vet over 30 years in the Navy, he's been on so many different deployments and been in combat. And he'll say, look, everybody's got a plan until the first bullet is fired. Yeah. And as soon as that first, you hear that first bullet zing by, everything changes and you respond to the highest level of your training. And that's kind of an adage that you hear with a lot of guys and, you know, men and women with regards to first responders and, 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 you know, military law enforcement and so forth. You know, Mike Tyson would put it this way. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. You know, everybody thinks they're ready for the fight. And as Thomas Moore says, don't, don't brag that you would have this kind of courage and strength. It is a gift that is given and I think many people today who would say, well, I'm ready to die for the faith, but they won't even bring up certain conversations at the dinner table with relatives yeah. about the church, about standing for the church's truth and teachings on things like birth control, which almost never gets discussed hardly anywhere, even from the pulpit. I hardly ever hear anything on that because it's such a contentious issue for so many people. But your point, though, Joshua, if you could kind of maybe expand a bit more on, because I, I think I, I agree that we're in a different place right now with regards to our level of strength. If we go in softer to the conflict, you know, we're not as prepared physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, then the degree of persecution, like you're saying, it doesn't take as much to break us. 
And I, I always say, like, I think you kind of said it there is that the devil doesn't necessarily care if we're worshiping, you know, worshiping him through small animal sacrifices and lighting a pentagram in your backyard. If you're simply soft and living in an obstinate mortal sin, you don't have a deep devotion, you kind of play that lukewarm sort of thing. You're not really caring that much. You, you're in a bad state and you can lose your soul over that. So being persecuted at a time when we're already so soft it, it is, is what you're saying then it really doesn't take a lot to yeah. break us if we're already going into the times so weakened when it comes to these things. Is that, is that accurate? Am I getting that right? Yeah. In general, uh, to go to your, your first point, um, many of the great minds of history, not just saints, not just Catholics have pointed out that luxury and prosperity tend to create weak societies. Mm. It's not that we don't want prosperity. Uh, you know, I don't want people starving. I want people having roofs over their head, things like that. But there's a but there's a form of um, material needs being met that these ancient historians wouldn't have considered prosperity or luxury, but sufficient. So, for right. example, Livy, the Roman historian, you know, secular guy, he's a pagan. Um, he's writing in the first century. So I don't even know if he knew about Christians um yet but he's writing a history of rome and he's writing about the lead up from the republic to the empire and he basically said um and polybius says something very similar a greek historian from a few centuries earlier and other roman historians say the same thing and many many others and catholic saints aquinas augustine they all say it that when the riches in general when riches flood a society creates soft people because they their soul becomes habituated to choosing comfort mm. right and these these Roman historians in particular identified when the riches came in from the east, you know, Rome had all these conquests in the east. And so there were all these um, kind of similar as to what happened with the new world when the new world was discovered. You know, there were all sorts of new things. I'm forgetting what some of them were, but things like uh, I think tomatoes were new, sugar, uh, coffee, tea. There were all these new and nice and pleasant things that in and of themselves, of course, there's nothing sinful with them. But what it does is it habituates us to being soft. Mm -hmm. It habituates us to, um, and it, look, I'm the first to admit, <laughs> Doug, you're, I don't know about father. Father, I'll, I'll give you a pass. Maybe you would be competent at hunting. Doug, I'm virtually certain you are. And I'm virtually, I'm not virtually, I am certain I'm not. And so, so, you know, if there wasn't, if there wasn't a decent grocery store nearby, I, you know, I have my own food storage and some emergency stuff, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't know what I was doing, you know? And so, um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that per se, right. but it, but it does mean, you know, we're in a world where I can order something today, even a, a few weeks before Christmas and get it tomorrow from yeah. Amazon delivered right to my door. Again, is there anything wrong or sinful with that? No, but it's a matter in, in the weakness of the flesh, concupiscence, those who haven't been baptized and are still in even original sin, uh, that gets them used to a level of comfort that they will do what they must to maintain that comfort. And you know, so I, some, I, yeah, I'm sure they jump in on this because there, there's a quote. It's a quote I brought up many times in the podcast and in, in talks I've given publicly. And it's a quote from an old movie um, that, that John Wayne played Genghis Khan. I think it's called The Conqueror. It's a terrible, you know, casting decision. But yeah, it, but there's there's a quote in there where Genghis Khan's men are about to overrun some village and the elder of the village comes out the day before. He's trying to negotiate, calm things down. 
And at one point he says, why don't you bring your men in? We'll give them comfort. We'll give them wine, food, you know, and someone in Genghis Khan's entourage says, no, the men will stay out here and they'll sleep on the ground where it's hard because if the men become too comfortable, they'll get soft. If they get yeah. soft, they'll get weak. If they get weak, they can't fight. If they can't fight, they'll die. Yeah. Now that can be taken physically and spiritually. That sounds like that's what you're saying that some of these saints have said in the past. Oh, yeah. Well, and to bring up the contraception issue you mentioned earlier, um, not to get sidetracked, but this is very related to all this because the, all these saints live lives of penance, every mm -hmm. single one of them, fasting, um, wearing hair skirt, hair, hair skirts, not, not skirts, um, hair <laughs> shirts. Um, uh, they were saints after all. Um, but um, they, they all had lived very penitential lives. Mm -hmm. And so even when they were in relative you know, peace and security and plenty. Uh, they um, like, you know, Venerable Fulton Sheen for much of his life, he was in a pretty materially comfortable situation. Athanasius, he was exiled many times, many times he wasn't comfortable, but there were other times where he was in a sea for periods of time and he was, and he was fine. And, but he still lived a penitential life in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. uh, St. John Fisher was a, the Bishop of Rochester, you know, uh, and he was a personal um, assistant to the King, not an assistant, but a, an advisor. And, um, and he, the, when, when all of his stuff, he was in, he was in the tower of London and the King's policemen, guards, whatever you want to call them, they go to his residence to expropriate all of his property. And what do they find? They're expecting to find all these riches and whatever they find a hair shirt and they find, um, I'm, I, I guess you'd call it a whip. I mean, he would literally like whip his back, mm. um, in penance. And so that's what this, you know, a man who could have lived a wealthy, luxurious life had the resources to do so before the King turned on him. Um, wasn't. He lived a very penitential life. And so going back just to make a brief comment, because I think this is actually very, very important. The contraception thing. Uh, contraception has wrecked absolute havoc on the men of our society. Mm. I have many thoughts about that. But I think fundamentally it's because it's, it's habituated men to be able to uh, um, uh, aspire to and receive marital relations that have been fundamentally disconnected from their primary purpose, which is procreation. You know, they're letting the pleasure tail wag the procreation dog. Hmm. And, and what it's done, frankly, is I think it's made a lot of men who simply don't lead in their marriages. They, they don't exercise frankly, paternal authority um, in the way that they should. And what's happening is, is a lot of men are leaving the church um, and, and that's what effeminate men do. They leave when things are not to their liking, uh, or when they can have a seemingly greater pleasure. Um, but it requires greater sacrifice. So I think contraception has wrecked absolute havoc in our society with men making them weak. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's so many, there's so many jokes about this, uh, with husbands and wives, but it's not funny. Like the, the jokes right. about ball and chain and whatever. It's like, I know very well. I have many wonderful male friends. Fortunately, most of them don't do this, but I've been around a lot of men in my life. You know, I was in a fraternity and whatnot. Every man knows that 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 um, the reason why a lot of this happens is because they're going after the pleasurable aspect of a relationship with a woman, not the other aspects. Mm. And um, it made me think when you're talking with the soldiers, how connected with scripture and the faith um, in the Old Testament, the priests, when they did their priestly service at the temple, they had to be celibate. Uh, they couldn't be with their wives. Well, I guess if they were married, they'd be abstaining, not, not celibate. Um, and the same with the soldiers. Uh, was it Uzziah? Yeah, the one that, that uh, King David uh, had relations with Bathsheba, and she was yeah. married to Uzziah. And he um, 
brings back Uzziah and he wants Uzziah to sleep with his wife so that the forthcoming baby will appear to be Uzziah's. And Uzziah says, basically, no, I'm basically on duty. He doesn't say that exactly, but that's essentially what he says. It's like, I'm with my men. We're at a war. Like the soldiers were not permitted to have relations, even with their wives. So lawful relations, they denied to themselves. And say, uh, saint, well, I guess he would be a saint, but King David as well, when him and his men, I believe they were coming to Jerusalem and they, they get the bread of the presence from the priest. And the priest asked a question like, have you guys been with women? Are you impure? And he said, no, we have not been with women. So um, again, was it lawful? Of course, they were married men, um, just like it was lawful in the New Testament. But Paul, I'm forgetting where, but he he advises um, husband and wife to occasionally abstain from the marital bed so that their prayers are not hindered. So this is so so a life of penance is when we withdraw from what are what are lawful and licit um, necessities and even pleasures um, in order for a higher good and but our entire society, whether it's getting something immediately the next day from Amazon Prime or contraception when it comes to marital relations or pornography that's instantly available in our pockets through smartphones, whatever, the the air our society, or, or, or even, again, nothing's wrong with this, but being able to have music, um, music instantly, movies instantly, shows instantly, food instantly, DoorDash, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with this. But what it does is it gets us used, like our ancestors would look at us like we have a the, the average man in America today has a greater level of material. His house may be smaller, but he has a greater level of material luxury than a czar of Russia 100 years ago. <laughs> a czar of Russia did not have air conditioning. A czar of Russia did not have heating. A czar of Russia did not have access to all these things. Well, maybe food because he had all these servants. But, but, you know, all the other things. So, yeah, not to get too sidetracked, but. All of these saints lived a life of penance. And 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 so, and this is, I'm saying this just as much to me as to anybody else. Um, and since I've become a Catholic, I've taken fasting way more seriously. This is one of the things about the faith that um, has really changed my life and, and been very, very different from before being Catholic. And so, um, but all these saints lived a penitential life. So for those of us who are in these especially prosperous times, even in the midst of all the issues, there are certainly issues. Um, we really need to take a life of penitence um, very seriously. Yeah, there's a supernatural impact that, that that's associated with that. God is there saying, "Okay, I, you know, I always say He's a perfect dad." Okay, I hear you now because you know you're 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 crying out to Him in a very uh, physical way, and so uh, and it's and and what's interesting too is that the science is caught up with God. Because fasting now, yep. they're finding the health benefits to it. So, yep. um, but Joshua, one of the things um, I don't even know where to start because there's so much I want to say. <laughs> but I find it interesting that you're that you've been focusing on contraception, and I agree with you. And uh, what was it, Griswold versus Connecticut, um, yeah. 1965, and that's kind of when you know the every the, the dam exploded, right? And what happened? It, and and here's where I want to go with that. I want to get your take on this. Is that I've always been fascinated by this. Yeah, oftentimes, I think not so much lately, at least I don't see it, but I used to growing up, I'd see everybody, especially our Protestant brothers and sisters, had this bumper sticker on their car, car John 3:16. And you know, why that of all the passages? Well, I guess they believe that's the summation of everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that ever believes in him will have eternal life. I think I got that right. I'm doing it from memory, but yeah. but then I found uh, then I found it very interesting 
that I think, and now I'm going into Fatima, and when you look at the 60s, the late 60s, that's the halfway point, okay, of the 100 years of Satan, which if you're in the school of thought that it started with the miracle of the sun, which I am. Sure. Uh, but anyways, um, w there's another passage in the Bible that's Revelations 3.16. And I personally, I don't think it's an accident that they're both 3.16. But, but what is that? Oh, how I wish you were hot or cold. Uh, but because yeah. you're lukewarm, I vomit you out of my mouth. Do you see what Satan did? He made us lukewarm. He took away the essence, the essence of what it means to be a man, as you're pointing to right now in uh, the, the marital act. And and I'll go now to, uh, and this is this is where I'm at, and I, I think it's going to take a lot to get me out of this, but if the church right now is talking about unite, you and, and, the, and I'm talking about the liturgy specifically right now, mm -hmm. but it should be how we believe as well, but unite where? Well, a, a lot of those that are in charge right now want to advocate, let's unite at where the liturgy ended up right now. And I'm saying no. And I'm not, I, I love the TLM, but I think what, what was proposed with the 1965 missile and before the wokesters, <laughs> liturgists, bishops, uh, waltzed in and, you know, implemented all their new cool ideas that that's the place where we're going to unite. But what am I, why do I talk about that? Well, if we believe it's a source and summit of our faith, the Holy Eucharist, and it's not impacting people right now. I mean, uh, it tears me apart. I, I'm, I'm having a, a, a discerning moment right now because, um, when I was in my last parish, we really worked hard for several years to get people to understand why to receive on the tongue, and I got transferred. So it's going to take a few more years to help out people. But to see a guy go like this with the Eucharist, you know, and yeah. and just kind of grab it and, you know, kind of walk away, I, you there's no way you believe that's God. Yeah. You know, and that's just an example, right? Um, but what what happened and again, I think it's the six, the late 60s, especially, that until now, that we were we were conditioned to become lukewarm. Now we're in a place where we're easy pickings because we're so soft, we're so weak, we're so lukewarm, we're so indifferent that that uh that the the devil, and I always put it this way, the devil's just laughing. He's just walking in and laughing. And who's getting persecuted? Now let's get to your book. The Strong. Mm -hmm. Oh, how I wish you were hot or cold. You get hot, you get persecuted. Yeah. You're dangerous because we want to promote this lukewarm church. I'll even throw in noble reasons they might have because that will attract lukewarm people to us. You know, uh, is I don't know what... I do believe it's demonic. I believe it's all about the devil and whether people are are, are aware of it or not. But, and, and I've said the devil's army aren't necessarily the, the persecutors and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Satanists and all that stuff. His, his, cause his bigger army and more effective army is the lukewarm. It's the lukewarm because they're modeling, they're conditioning, they're, they're, they're advocating for, a lukewarm faith. And and here, I'll ask this question. 
is it close, at least close, for me to say that you get out of the lukewarm community and start advocating for truth and devotion and true love and 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 uh oh um well just devotion to mm -hmm. your faith isn't that who's being persecuted isn't aren't they the ones that are considered dangerous uh i think so in general um and that was true of many of these saints which is why we wanted to share their stories uh, right. i can do an extremely quick rundown with all of them uh saint athanasius uh you know the phrase that was associated with him was athanasius contra mundum which is the latin for against the world and so he's in the midst of the arian crisis he was a deacon at the council of nicaea but he became a bishop soon after and of course arius was from the diocese of alexandria so he's from uh athanasius's home diocese athanasius was booted from his diocese five times by emperors uh in uh uh leagued up with corrupt bishops who were trying to push arianism which said that jesus wasn't really god he was just a really special man essentially um there's even a pretty harrowing story which we include in the book isn't that where, a kind of a way of defining lukewarmness right i mean if you again? start talking about divinity or you're talking about uh, okay supernatural and miracles and and we don't well, want to go there because that's that's too much for people, right? Well, and that's You're what Athanasius constantly had to deal with. His his right. the threats he dealt with were not just out and out Arians, but they were Catholic. I think I think truly Catholic bishops who were constantly tempted to subscribe to these uh, compromise formulas. So, to, compromise. so instead of sticking with There's Nicaea, the to change the you know consubstantial was the main word that we still have it in the creed at every mass to this day that the son is consubstantial, meaning of the same substance right. as the father. And and so Catholic, I do believe they were Catholic. They were at least intending to be Catholic, many of them. But there were all these temptations, usually because of pressure from Aryan-friendly emperors and whatnot. And, right. you know, we know that there's peer pressure among, among priests as well. You know that. Um, to have these compromise formulas that weren't outright Aryan, that were, were, but were moderating Nicaea. And Athanasius kept saying, no, no, no. Right. And there was even a time when Pope Liberius, I looked at the papal list the other day because I've been doing some research on papacy stuff for some articles. Um, pope Liberius, if I'm not misremembering, I don't think I am. He's the first pope that was not a saint. Why? Well, I don't, I, I have a guess. And the guess is, is it was under duress and Athanasius recognized this and later defended Pope Liberius's orthodoxy. But Pope Liberius, under duress from an emperor, pressure from an emperor, you know, sign this or else kind of a thing, subscribed to a semi-Aryan creed. So, and you can imagine in a world where it's not instant communication, far from it. It can take weeks or months to 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 get to have something happen in one part of the empire and make it to another part. So for a time, it would have appeared as if the Pope himself had compromised on the formula of Nicaea. Think of how um, traumatizing that would be. And yet, even in that case, because Athanasius knew that the faith could not change, and he did not to get into the whole papal heresy debate, 
But he did believe that essentially if you were a heretic, you just automatically fell from office because Paul talks about a heretic judges himself already. He's judged already if he doesn't believe the faith. So, you know, putting that to the side, not to get on another tangent, um, it would have appeared for a while that the Pope had compromised. Now, again, it was under duress. And when he was no longer under threat from the emperor, Pope Liberius straightened things out and Athanasius defended his orthodoxy. My only point being um, that there can be times in the church where things are far from certain in a human sense, but God and his providence ultimately overrules it and uh, and rules it and puts it in a good spot. Um, St. Joan of Arc, I already mentioned earlier, uh, she, uh, most people probably know the story, but she essentially had some visions from some saints and they essentially said, you're going to help Charles VII, who was the king in waiting of the French. Um, you're going to help him become the monarch of France. And at the time, France was in a big war with England. England had many territories throughout modern day France for many centuries. In fact, William the Conqueror came from Normandy, which is in France, and then he conquered England. So that that long history there. But this was the Hundred Year War, and Charles VII was the king-in-waiting, the Dauphin, and Joan of Arc basically signed up and said, I'm here from with a mission from God to lead armies against the English and make sure you're king. And so his advisors were very skeptical, and you know priests were checking her out to make sure she wasn't demon-possessed or something. And the priest said, no, she's good. We There's no signs of demon possession or anything. And so Charles VII accepted her. She won these amazing victories. He was crowned at Rheims, which is the French town. Uh, the Cathedral of Rheims is the traditional location for the coronation of French monarchs. And so he's coronated. He doesn't really give her much credit. Uh, you know, trust not in princes, the scripture says. Um, and then soon after, she was in a battle with the English and she was captured. And then she was under a bishop who was in league with the English. He was part of the Burgundians. It was a kind of an ethnic uh, related to the French, but the, they were called the Burgundians. And so um, the local bishop, he he constituted this ecclesial tribunal, and it was a sham trial for a variety of reasons. But Joan of Arc appealed to the Pope, which he had every right to do in canon law, every right. Um, and the bishop denied it. He would not let her do it. Now, why was that? Because it was a political trial. He wanted to show, the English wanted to show with their Burgundian allies that Joan of Arc was a witch, a sorceress, and that's who is behind Charles VII, a witch and a sorceress and a heretic. That's essentially what they wanted to say. So it wasn't about getting to what was actually true or what was just. It was about achieving a political objective. And she was, she, I, she was murdered. Let's just be honest. She was murdered. A Catholic bishop, and his priests uh, murdered a laywoman who actually had received visions from God. And the sentence that was imposed against her was later overturned by the Pope soon after she died, based on all the testimony from her friends and family who testified she was extremely pious, that the idea that she was a sorceress and a heretic and a witch was absurd, um, and that her rights in canon law were egregiously violated. And she's a saint. So that's Joan of Arc. St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher, again, St. Thomas More was High Chancellor of England, John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester. Um, uh, they both have long, complicated stories, but essentially they were standing up for papal authority and for marriage because Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce. Well, he wanted an annulment, but there was no valid reason in reason or uh, whatnot to grant him one because uh, he wanted to marry a new woman who would get him an heir. And uh, and and John Fisher knew this was wrong. Thomas More that knew it was wrong. And they eventually both said, no, you can't do that. The only person who can allow you to do it through an annulment is the Pope. 
and you can't reject him because he is St. Peter's successor. So, and they all, they were all executed. So, um, and then St. Teresa and John of the Cross, they were in a situation where their order, um, the uh, Carmelites, over the centuries, the rule that that was governing it was weakened and weakened. We're talking about penitence and and growing soft. From their point of view, the the rule for their order was getting softer and softer and softer, and they were wanting to engage in a reform effort that would take it back to the more rigorous vows of poverty and community life and whatnot. Um, St. John of the Cross didn't even want to wear shoes. That's how penitential life you want to live. Mm. And and uh, eventually they succeeded, mm. and eventually both were beloved. Um, but they went through many, many years of being slandered. There were there were royals and princesses that um, reported St. Teresa's books to the Inquisition. Uh, her autobiography wasn't published till six years after her life. Um, so both of them dealt with a lot of grief, not only from the religious in their community, but from priests and bishops who were just constantly attacking them, reporting them to Rome. It was very nasty. Uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori was in a similar situation with his order. Um, he arguably made some unwise decisions. There was a He had a confessor, and they were basically writing the rule to get it approved by the Pope. It's a complicated situation. But uh, St. Alphonsus basically signed his name in the bottom of each page. It was blank. And he said, I trust you to write this well. Well, the confessor ended up writing a rule that was like hyper weakened and and vows of poverty and all that were gone. And 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 so it, it was a major lapse of judgment for this great saint. Um, <laughs> but he ended up getting booted from his own order. And so the last six years of his life, he was a very depressed man many times. He went through many hallucinations, I would say hallucinations, and he was constantly concerned about his salvation. He also had some consolations from our Lord with other visions, but he was despised. The, the priests who lived with them um, basically said that they had to be martyrs of patience, I think was the term. Um, so he he was going through a sort of dark night of the soul. He had been rejected from his own order. The Pope had said, I've made this decision. There's no chance of appeal. The issue is closed. No more. And St. Alphonsus responded very humbly. He said, I accept the Pope's decision as God's decision. Now, does he mean the Pope is God? Of course not. What he meant was is that God was exercising his providence through the decision of the Pope. That's what he meant. Um, St. Mary MacKillop, same sort of thing. She, I think she's the first Australian saint. She started the Josephites, the Sisters of Mary, and her whole goal was to reach little children. And so she, most of her sisters were educators. And so they would open these schools and whatnot. Well, she faced constant backbiting from the priests and the bishop. She was even excommunicated by her bishop, all this back. And, and she ended up um, being vindicated after she was dead. <laughs> so again, another situation where a saint, um, if you looked with simply the eyes of, of man, you'd see an absolute failure, which is ironically what, besides the resurrection, of course, you'd see with Christ, you'd see with many of the apostles. Um, uh, St. Padre Pio, his story is very well known. You know, he has a stigmata, holy priest. And yet he's prevented from saying public mass and all these sorts of things. And he submitted docilely, humbly, um, very similar to St. Alphonsus Liguori. He saw in the decision of his ordinary. He didn't. It doesn't mean he's just. He, to, to submit to a decision is not to say it's just. It's to say, I recognize that God's providence, meaning God's superintendence of history for the betterment of those who love him, which the saints were all trying to do, that his providence was being expressed to the bishop's decision or the pope's decision, whoever it may be. 
And then finally, Venerable Fulton Sheen was in a very long battle with Cardinal Spellman, who was his uh, superior in New York. And, you know, Fulton Sheen had this wildly successful media career. He was kind of like the Bishop Barron in ways. Um, many people have compared Bishop Barron to him. Um, uh, that was reaching millions and millions of homes, uh, very popular, very uh, writing books, lecturing all over the world. Um, but then this this cardinal, Cardinal Spellman, um, had a had a gripe with him. And and one of the things was uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen was the head of this charitable organization. And normally what happened was the cardinal uh, would get milk from them, uh, would give milk to them so they could get, give it distributed to this organization. But at one point, out of out of pure vengeance, the cardinal said to Sheen that uh, you have to pay millions and millions of dollars for this to cover the cost. And Sheen refused to do so because he had no right to do so within his organization. And the, anyway, the cardinal told the pope the opposite of what was true. Eventually, the pope ruled in favor of Sheen. Um, but it became clear in that investigation that Spellman had outright lied to the pope. And so for Sheen, his brother bishop, a cardinal from his own state, his own area, had outright lied about him to the Holy Father. And eventually um, Sheen was kind of uh, exiled to the Diocese of Rochester in New York, where he was only there for about a year, I think. Um, and it was a difficult situation, some of it because of his own failures. But these are the types of stories. Um, you know, I joked when I was at the White House, including with this colleague, Alec, that I wrote this book with. Uh, all of us in the room, when I made this joke, were all converts from Protestantism. And I said, you know, the thing that really sucks about being Catholic is we can't complain about suffering anymore. Because <laughs> and, 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 there's nothing that um, there's nothing that I think. I think most of us Americans assume that if we're having a bad time, all we need is a good vent. Yeah. And, and and maybe that's true sometimes. I'm not saying that's totally false, but that's a little bit more like Oprah than like the saints, if I may say so. <laughs> Many of these saints were very, not always, not always. But many times in the face of the most egregious injustice committed against them from people within the church um, were silent and were humble. And and um, they accepted it as it's like. Every time they were getting struck, it's like they knew they were getting more and more gold in heaven, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah, like I said, that's why I said at the very beginning of the show, I'm not presuming in this interview to 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 understand and have incorporated all of this into my own life. I'm I'm challenged by all these saints yeah. every day. Um, but I, I do think that in the times we're in, this is why I, I tend to like your guys' podcast as well. You know, you guys aren't gaslighting anybody. You're not saying, oh, yeah, this really, really bad thing that's happening. Oh, it's not happening. You know, there, there are people out there that do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately so you guys don't do that but but there's also a great sense of peace and a great sense of faith and a great sense of confidence in in god's love and his and i think we need to recover this the doctrine of providence and the doctrine is that god superintends he's sovereign over all things for the good not of everybody this is the harder part mm. of the doctrine not of everybody for the good of those who love him yeah the good of those who love him and the way that many of these saints um, loved him was to endure far greater pains than most of us will. Maybe not you, Father. I, I know that you've had to deal with some things um, and maybe more yet, but um, but far greater pains than many of us have and probably ever will. And so uh, we need to take some humble pie and realize that 
if they could have peace in the midst of those sorts of situations by God's grace, well, you know, gosh, diggity is one of my good friends says, and we all make fun of him for it in our men's group. Um, uh, then we can have peace in the midst of what we're going through, through God's yeah. grace. And uh, we don't need to get worked up. So I was just going to ask you on that. I know we've, we've got just a little bit of time left here, but your, your book is important and it's important because there's something about knowing the stories of the saints, stories of the heroes that have gone before us in anything, whether it's, you know, athletics, the, you know, we love to hear about the Babe Ruths and, you know, the, you know, just those who really, who really stuck it out, no matter how difficult it was. Jackie um, Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. And, and more importantly, in the areas of faith. Um, so we always like to try to bring out of our podcast encouragement for people for let's call it actionable steps. Our modern day is you, you know, we've already made very clear. It's difficult to really understand a degree of suffering in some parts of the world, like the, like the West, because we have our sleep number beds our you know, our, our lazy boy recliners, our smart TVs, we can tell it what channel and what to turn to and what movie to watch. You know, we can, I can adjust the thermostat of my house if I had it set up and I don't through my phone, my smartphone, I can change the temperature of my house. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane what we've got now with all of that. Why is it important to know about these stories of our brothers and sisters who've gone before us? And then how do you find us actionably applying that to today? Because obviously what Joan of Arc went through is different than what, you know, you know, Marsha, who just is a faithful mother and wife and trying to go to church, and she's never going to be on the level of maybe receiving messages from God to tell, a, uh, you know, a king in waiting, hey, you got a job to do. But what do you say, how do we every day apply these 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 rules or these, these in, inspirational stories and sacrifices to what we have to go through now. I think if we wanted to be, it's a it's questionable whether many people want it to be. But um, I think if we want it to be, this can be a golden age of Catholic evangelism and apologetics. The reason why is because we are being put in situations where the external visible supports that in some ages, not all ages of the church, but in some ages, and perhaps with uh, great papacies like JP2 and Benedict, you know, they had their issues, but, uh, you know, they were very solid on many things um, that those visible supports offer. And so it kind of makes it so you don't have to make a fully fleshed out argument for the faith because things are just so good. And one of the great benefits of having things not be so good is you have to get to the essence of things. Mm. And and th- ultimately, that's what people need is the essence of what the faith is, which is Christ and Christ crucified. And, you know, we on our previous podcast, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in other ones, uh, I think it was very providential. I began studying eschatology with the fathers just out of pure interest at the beginning of 2020. Then COVID happens. Um, <laughs> you know, we're all uh, literally all the fathers say that one of the things Antichrist will do is uh, bring the public celebration of the mass to an end for three and a half mm-hmm. years. So uh, we had three and a half months. So, uh, you know, it, was, it certainly seemed to be a, a type of that. And so that was my first Easter as a Catholic. So I came in July, 2019. And so my very first Easter as a Catholic, I can't even go to church. <laughs> and so it was a very wow. surreal and interesting time. So um, I say that because of my study of eschatology, not to get into the end times topic, but this, this reality of the anti-church within. And by the way, any of us can belong to this anti-church. 
if we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or don't love our brothers and neighbors as ourselves, we can fall into this anti-church by falling into mortal sin. But specifically, the reality, the apostles warned about it, Christ warned about it, many of the fathers warned about it, that there were always going to be those within the church who are actively seeking to undermine it, her. You know, that's it, always been the case. Uh, I'm a Protestant. I'm a, I, I'm a Catholic today from being Protestant because when I read the fathers, they articulated a theology where all of this made sense. It's very, very hard for many Protestants and even some Catholics who are struggling whether they should stay in the church or not to say, well, would the true church of Christ be like this? Well, reading the fathers and scripture and the, the lives of these saints, I hope disabuses everybody of these childish notions. I will say childish, not in a derogatory, making fun of people way, but like Paul talks about, I'm giving you the milk. I want to get you to the meat. Well, mm. we've had a long period where many of us could get by on milk. Now we're in a period where milk will not suffice. We need the meat. And so that's what I mean by if we want it to be, this really can be a golden age of evangelism and apologetics. I'm seeing converts everywhere. I know a lot of other people are leaving. I know there are problems everywhere, but God's grace is real. And I will say to fellow Catholics, as a former Protestant, as bad as things sometimes are, I don't deny it. Don't deny it. I'll tell you the church remains for me like a paradise in comparison mm -hmm. to what was mm -hmm. before. A paradise. So those are those are some of my thoughts. I think I think yeah. these saints will just adjust our Overton window, so to speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not only what's possible, but 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 we frankly need to be willing to accept. Jesus, I'll close with this. When I came to the Catholic Church, I would consistently say part of the reason I'm becoming Catholic is because everything about it mirrors our Lord. Our Lord had a human and a divine nature, and the human nature could be very battered and bruised. That's very if the, if, if he calls the church his body, his church would be the same. It'd have a human element and a divine mm -hmm. element, and that human element could be really battered and bruised sometimes, <laughs> um, even by its own, you know, as he was. And so I said the reason I'm becoming Catholic is because at the end of the day. The Catholic Church, on its, at its best, expects something of me. Mm. It says to me, you only go to heaven on a cross. Period. No questions. Mm. No questions. And if there's anything that I hope um, enthusiastic cradle Catholics and, um, you know, zealous converts, of which, you know, I know the converts are kind of known for that, is that just light a fire under our butts, frankly. Mm. Like, we've got so much more we can do. It can get so much worse. So, like, stop. There are some words I may use in my men's group that I won't use right now, but but stop complaining. Yeah, um, we've yeah. got work to do. We've right. got joy to do. We if, if if you're going like do penance, like read more fathers, uh, right. go to adoration. Th this thing has changed my life. This rosary, I started praying at January first, twenty nineteen. Prayed it virtually every day since then. There are sins that I had in my life habitually. There are still struggles, but they have disappeared. They've mm. disappeared because yes. Our Lady. Her prayer, anyway. So I could keep going. I don't nice. want to be the preacher that that gets going and gets too lazy to stop. So I don't want to be that guy. So, <laughs> but 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 that's like I hope these stories. I know it's Alex Hope as well, my co-author. I hope these stories help Catholics see we're fine. We're yep. fine, and yeah. and God is there to be with us in the midst of these struggles. And, and I love what you said there to you know spread the joy. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, you know I I always uh, I, I say. You know, when I go to read emails, I do the sign of the cross before I do it because I wonder, 
what they're going to come yeah. after me for this time. And it's always nonsense. We need to do that before comment sections, right? Before we yeah, yeah. exactly. But, and and about the only symptom from it all is I, I have a little bit of fatigue, you know, yeah. but, but you know what? I'm driven. I'm driven to spread the joy and, and uh, yep, it, it's, it's a battle and battles can be tiring. Uh, but I, I'm driven even more to, to spread the joy uh, because darn it, I I want us hot, you know. Remember, oh, I wish you were hot or cold, uh, but because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit your mouth. To me, that's the anti-church. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it's not like you know they're Satan worshippers and you know they're doing the whatever uh, Satanists do. No, it's it the the people that are doing the worst damage are the lukewarm. And going, yeah. no, you don't really have to do that. You don't really have to believe that. You don't really have to compromise, 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 compromise. It's the lukewarm that are doing the greatest damage, that are doing the greatest work for Satan. Mm. And and what are they noted for? They're they're lukewarm. They're they're not <laughs> spread the joy. And I actually think uh faith is meant to be fun, you know, because you if you're <laughs> if you really yeah. get close to the Lord and and yeah. lit up with the Holy Spirit, you just want to dance, you know. Yeah. You just wanna, and spread wow. that joy. So, um, Joshua, thank you so much for being on. Uh, we our producer has to go coach his kids' basketball yeah. game, so we got to say one final up, but... sentence. Flannery O'Connor yeah, yeah, yeah. said about the Eucharist: if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. Well, exactly. I'll, I'll, mod- I'll modify it and say if if the Catholic faith is not really about eternal destiny, eternal life, or eternal damnation, to hell with it. I've got better things to do. Frank, mm, frankly, exactly. things I may want to do some days. Yeah, so, exactly. like you know. Exactly. So, yep. yeah. so point. that was, this was awesome, Josh. We got to have you on regularly, please. I'd love it. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Awesome, Thanks, Joshua. Joshua.